Welcome to another episode of Don't Butcher It, an intersectional self-help podcast for the underdog. I'm Upasana Barth. I'm your host. And it's actually been quite some time since I recorded a solo episode. Podcasting is actually very hard. If it's not hard for you, I'm jealous because it feels pretty hard to me. And I'm so lucky that my very good friend that I've known since my first year of college, Kennedy Taylor edited my script for me. She read through what I wrote, gave me some thoughts to bounce off of, and just gave me a sense of confidence because recently I haven't been feeling so confident. Just like a lot of self-doubt entering the brainstream, and it was just so wonderful to have someone back you up on your ideas, give you some more things to think about, and just say, hey, this this looks good. Especially someone you trust and care about. So, thank you, Kennedy. Something that I've also realized from procrastinating, I've never been much of a procrastinator, mainly because I ha- my anxiety makes me feel like if I do the thing, then the anxiety will go away, and honestly, it does until my mind finds something else to bother itself with. The reason I've been procrastinating recently is because I feel scared of what I'm going to do. Like, not in terms of, like, what I'm going to say or what I'm going to record, although those exist in some ways as fears as well. I mean more so of... Once this is out in the world, something bad is going to happen, like someone's going to take something I say the wrong way, or I just want things to be good enough. And I'm, and in wanting that, I always forget to ask myself if it's good enough for me. And even if it's not good enough for someone else, that actually does not matter (laughs) because it's good enough for me. Because I created it, and it makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I'm doing my part. It's cathartic. That's how I feel about it today. Tomorrow, I could honestly get super nervous about it again and hate it again. So I think I need to form a better relationship with podcasting if I want to continue doing this. Okay, morning journal thoughts aside. I've talked a lot about social media in this season on solo episodes and with guests, and most of it's been critique based on anecdotal experiences and opinions on self-commodification, but I'm definitely not anti-social media. With social media, I think it's important we critique the ways in which we use it. Today we're talking about context collapse, what it is, how it may show up in your life, and how it contributes to self-diagnosis through social media. With understanding context collapse, I hope you can increase your self-awareness as a social media user in order to support your mental health and sense of self. I believe in the importance of critical thinking about the information we consume and how we consume it, and social media is a significant part of committing to and engaging in this sort of mindset. The tweet where someone put in quotes, 
oh my gosh, stop being a hater. Let people enjoy things. In response, this person was like, okay, well, I enjoy being a hater and I enjoy critical analysis. <laughs> I think that's really funny. I don't operate from that mindset, but I do think it's funny for momentary use. In an article for sapiens.org, Sophia Goodman describes context collapse as trying to comfortably chat with your mother, bar buddy, work colleague, and ex-boyfriend at the same time. In an essay on Medium entitled Social Media and Context Collapse, Savannah S. says context collapse is the moment when you realize that talking to everyone is the same as talking to no one. For example, saying personal stuff in a crowd. I like this definition because it's saying that not knowing who you're talking to can mean you're not talking to anyone. Context collapse looks like this for me. Old classmates from India, old classmates from high school, people I talked to during welcome week of my first year in college and then never spoke to again, people who I'm pretty sure don't even like me but who still want to see what I'm doing for some reason, teachers and professors, and then some family members, all following me on Instagram or friends with me on Facebook, although I will admit to a recent Facebook friends purge that left me feeling very good. So when I post something, a meme, an infographic, a quote, everyone's going to perceive it differently. Some people may not even perceive it in the way I intended. Um, a point I have to add about context collapse is that it's a tool that can be wielded however you like. So this means motivation to, from an engagement perspective, provide content that applies to a large number of people, even if the topic itself is only applicable to a specific audience. If you want more people to engage with your content, then you've got to make sure it's applicable to as many people as possible. This is very different than hopping on a trend, because a trend is a trend, you know who your audience is, and you know they're going to like it because it's a hot topic at the moment. But with context collapse, if you're just trying to get awareness or spread information or get someone to interact with your brand or get attention for how hot you look, which personally I'm not against, but when I do it, I feel like I'm. it's very cringy. Moving on. While most of the research on context collapse rides on hypotheses about how it determines our posting style or how it affects our relationships, this episode is going to focus on none of that. <laughs> this episode is going to focus on how context collapse plays out in mental health narratives, leaving an unintended range of people consuming information that was meant for a certain audience that may not include them. This leads to a wide range of young people molding and adapting information to how it best suits them. If centered on mental health, the post may leave people with a very distorted and confused understanding of certain topics. This, of course, is just my opinion, so even if you don't agree with it, that's okay. And if you're curious about how I've come to this point, listen on. With context collapse working behind the scenes on your social media experience, self-help-centered infographics begs the question of how the phenomenon can work in reverse to. How context collapse plays a role in how we receive information, not just how we share it or what we choose to share. 
While taking advice that's potentially not meant for you can be internally disruptive at the most, maybe externally, depending on how far you take it, it's actually not a super big problem. Okay, that's a new pasna worried about the world problem. What might be more of a problem is how it lays the foundation for self-diagnosing, which is helpful for some people, but thanks to context collapse can be equally damaging. Whether you're scrolling on TikTok, past videos on mental health or five signs of depression or how to identify an eating disorder or watching a YouTuber talk about their mental health or reading infographics on Instagram or Facebook, it's not uncommon to come across mental health content. Specifically, content that's meant to help you identify symptoms of mental illness. Most often on TikTok, I've seen videos on six symptoms of ADHD and experiences of people with BPD, borderline personality disorder, and signs of bipolar disorder, as another example. I have seen all of these types of videos in the same day and as a result have thought to myself, do I have ADHD, BPD, and bipolar disorder? Because I experience all of these symptoms they're mentioning. Gratefully, I have access to therapy and I feel comfortable going to a therapist to get diagnosed and I've not been diagnosed with the aforementioned mental illnesses. At the same time, I do experience a lot of the symptoms mentioned, but because of other mental illnesses. There's a quote from the show um, called The OA. It's not a measure of well-being to be well-adjusted in a society that's very sick. So that is all to say mental illness is very common. It's nothing to be ashamed about or stigmatized. It is um, inevitable in the type of world that we're living When it comes to getting diagnosed, depending on a TikTok video or infographic intended for a specific audience and also in need of a high number of views, that's, it's perhaps not the best place to get your diagnosis from. There's too many stakeholders at play, but even if you had access to a therapist, depending on who you are, there's no guarantee you'll ever find one that's actually conducive for you. According to the American Psychological Association, in 2015, 86% of psychologists in the U.S. workforce were white, 5% were Asian, 5% were Hispanic, 4% were Black, and 1% were multiracial or from other unknown racial or ethnic group, whatever unknown means. This makeup is less diverse than the actual U.S. population as a whole, which is 62% white and 38% racial and ethnic minority. So that means if you're a person of color and you do have access to therapy, good luck finding a therapist of color. You're most likely going to end up with a white therapist. And if you're a person of color who also happens to be queer, then it's most likely going to be even harder to find a therapist who's queer and of color. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying depending on where you live, depending on your access to telehealth, your chances of ending up with a white therapist are much higher. In a 2020 study conducted by Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and Urban Institute, research showed that black adults in the U.S., particularly black women and black adults with low incomes, were more likely to report that they had experienced discrimination or feel like they had been unfairly judged by a healthcare provider or their staff. 
The National Healthcare Disparities Report showed that white patients received better quality of care than Black American, Hispanic, Indigenous, and Asian American patients. Additionally, an article for the American Journal of Public Health called Implicit Racial-Ethnic Bias Among Healthcare Professionals and Its Influence on Healthcare Outcomes says that in the U.S., some white healthcare providers maintain problematic explicit ideas about their black American patients, viewing them as less intelligent, less able to adhere to, to treatment regimens, and more likely to engage in risky health behaviors than their white counterparts. Hispanic and Latinx patients, too, were viewed as unlikely to accept responsibility for their own care and more likely to be non-compliant with treatment recommendations. Even if explicit attitudes are modified, implicit bias among providers toward people of color is likely to remain an influence in many ways that perpetuate disparity and inequity. All of that's to say, while access is one issue, even with access, quality care is another issue. With implicit biases playing a significant role in how people of color are medically treated, Many people are left with self-diagnosing as their only and best option. Let's talk about the good side to self-diagnosis first. Other than it being the solution for when you don't have access to a good therapist, self-diagnosis can be a good place to jumpstart self-awareness about one's own mental health. In an article called TikTok and Mental Health Self-Diagnosis by Mirelle Zaman for Refinery29, Dr. Kim Hayes, a professor of social justice for the Department of Nursing at Manchester Metropolitan University, whew, gotta give those creds, but that is a long sentence. This person's interviewed on this topic we're talking about, okay? She says that self-diagnosis through the internet may be a positive thing. She says, if a person finds a TikTok that relates to how they're feeling, they're unlikely to stick to TikTok. They'll go and have a look at other places online to see if there's more information out there. So then Mirel Zaman goes on to say, a person's research will either cast doubt on their original suspicion or validate it. And if they continue to believe their self-diagnosis is valid, they're more likely to seek out support from loved ones or a professional. Leslie Cook a clinical psychologist in Richmond, Virginia, who creates content on TikTok as at Leslie Side D. I actually don't know how to pronounce that degree. I'm so sorry. Um, this psychologist believes that even though TikTok shouldn't be anyone's primary source of medical information, self-diagnosis is still valid. And she says that if you take a really long look at psychology and psychiatry, it originated as a very oppressive system um, toward women, toward people of color, toward people who are disabled. So obviously, there are people who disagree um, as anything, any topic out there, there's people who agree and people who have something else to say. In the same article for Refinery29, Ina Kanevsky, PhD, a professor of psychology at San Diego Mesa College, says that she takes issue with videos that seem to encourage people to use them diagnostically, like those that ask viewers to put a finger down if they identify with certain experiences. She says, lots of things that show up in these videos aren't actual symptoms of these conditions. They may be common for people with these conditions, but they also happen in other conditions. There are people who knowingly spread misinformation and people who may think they're experts, but who are speaking on topics they don't fully understand. 
I present you with all of this information and all these opinions because social media isn't perfect and there's plenty of room to go wrong when it comes to self-reflection. While getting your mental health on track is important, so is not contributing to any stressors that could continue to impact you negatively. When you see a TikTok video or an infographic that feels like it's for you, <laughs> like, get it? Because for you, page. It's important to be aware of context collapse so you don't give social media all the power in the way you self-reflect. You can always self-reflect through journaling or having an honest conversation with a loved one or seeing a professional who can guide you. If we mindfully consume content that's more, to put it simply, serious, we expand our curiosity for learning and understanding more about the topic beyond how it was presented to us on social media. When it comes to self-diagnosing, it's especially important to mindfully consume the content that's causing us to self-diagnose. We should ask questions, ground ourselves in the reality of social media, and research more on how to help ourselves, which may include finding healthy coping mechanisms for symptoms before knowing our diagnosis for sure. This is how we, as users, take back our power from these addictive apps. Thank you for listening to this episode. Low-key, my throat kind of hurt by the end of it. Um, there was a deterioration in the vocal cords. Time to go drink some tea. Thank you again, Kennedy, for reading the script and editing it for me and working on it for me. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you like Don't Butcher It. Um, or if you don't like it that much. But be nice, please. Bye.